Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Acts. We're nearing our study. We we hope that you've enjoyed this study. We're going to be in chapter 27 and 28. Uh, 27 is a travelogue for Paul on his trip to Rome for his final trial. And so we'd like to open with a word of prayer before we start. Craig, please. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the word of God that you've given us that uh, you didn't leave us uh, alone in this world. You've given us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in your holy word. We pray now as we study together that uh, our eyes and our hearts would be uh, open and that we'd be attentive to your Holy Spirit. Guide us now in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Craig. And uh, good evening, Mark. Good evening. It is uh, great to be back with everyone. We have spent a number of sessions examining the ramifications of Paul's trials, the accusations made against him, the defense that he made, and how that he repeatedly summed up all of the charges against him as him being persecuted for the hope of Israel or the resurrection. And so we've tried to show that there's a kind of a synonymous idea in Paul's mind between the gospel of Christ, the kingdom of God, the resurrection, and the hope of Israel. And we've been trying to show, as we went through the book of Acts, that those are really incredibly interrelated concepts that are really one and the same thing. The body of Christ, which is the kingdom of God, which is the restoration of the throne of David to Israel and the resuscitation of Israel, which was a spiritually dead people when John the Baptist uh, began preaching to them there in the first century. So this is what we've shown. Uh, Encourage any listeners to go back and catch some of those uh, earlier lessons. But all of these trials concluded with Paul giving a semi-formal recap for Agrippa, who had come in to visit the uh, Roman procurator and offered to help the uh, procurator write up his letter of introduction as Paul was being forwarded on to the Supreme Court of Rome. It says Caesar, in all likelihood, uh, as we'll get to in a minute. Paul did not appear in front of Nero, who was Caesar at that time, but in front of the highest court that represented Nero, as far as these cases was concerned. So 
26 ends uh, with his statement for Agrippa, who uh, was a descendant of, of Herod the Great and an Edomite, and who concluded that Paul had done nothing worthy of even imprisonment, but but that since he had appealed to Caesar, you know, he needed to go on. So then in 27, we have a most detailed and fascinating travel log of Paul and his company being escorted by Roman soldiers to Rome. And Luke has an intimate knowledge of navigational details and all things maritime. And there's a fascinating amount of detail in there. We also are exposed to some basic historical facts, such as that Egypt and the Nile River Valley was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. And for the second part of Paul's journey, he's on a grain ship, which is very slow moving and is a massive ship with 267 people on board, in addition to a massive cargo of grain going from Alexandria to Rome. And this situation uh, very much uh, continues to this present day. Much of the food that Europe uses is grown in Egypt and the Nile uh, River Valley, and agriculture still accounts, I believe, for 80% of Egypt's national product. So we, we get to see all kinds of fascinating historical details in this travelogue in 27 and the first part of 28. But for our purposes, the interesting thing to note, and I encourage everyone to go back and read that through at this time, which we're not going to take the time to do, but notice that Paul is supposed to be a prisoner, and yet by the end of this trip, the Roman commander is deferring to Paul, and we see how God's providence through this journey is demonstrating that he is speaking through Paul. At first, the ship's crew and the Roman officers ignore these messages from Paul, but God keeps verifying them and proving them with acts of nature or acts of God, as we would say in contractual language. And so I just urge everyone to uh, pay attention to all of this detail and note that because God had determined that Paul would speak in Rome, there was absolutely no doubt about Paul's safety coming through this perilous trip. And so please pay attention to that because, again, our dispensational friends believe that God wanted to set up his kingdom but failed and could not foresee or take steps to prevent that failure. And over and over again in the Bible, we see that such a view of the Bible is completely impossible, unlikely, inconsistent, and is blasphemous in that it denies the absolute sovereignty of the Lord God Yahweh. And so I cannot have any any part of it. And we see this journey of Paul, and God is in absolute control, and his purpose to get Paul to Rome will not be thwarted any more than his purpose to bring Jesus to David's throne by way of the cross could not and would not be thwarted by any choices, actions, or hopes of mankind. And so let's read in Acts 28, please, verse 16 and 17. Upon our entry into Rome, 
Paul was allowed to take a lodging of his own, although a soldier was assigned to keep guard over him. Three days later, Paul invited the prominent men of the Jewish community to visit him. When they had gathered, he said, My brothers, I have done nothing against our people or our ancestral custom. Yet in Jerusalem I was handed over to the Romans as a prisoner. All right, thank you. So as we see this starting at the very end of the travel narrative, we see that the the regular prisoners in the entourage were turned over as prisoners in chains, really, to the jailer in Rome. But yet, Paul is allowed to dwell by himself with a soldier as an escort, more or less. And many scholars believe that when Paul says he's in chains, that he's not referring to literal chains. Now, he may have appeared, it is likely he may have appeared before the uh, procurators and Agrippa and so on in chains, just as a matter of decorum, but it is unlikely that he was actually, you know, kept chained at any time in this imprisonment under Roman custody at this time, at least all the time. So, well, I'll leave that with you to consider either way. Now, what is the first thing that Paul does that's recorded here? once he gets to Rome and gets his dwelling place settled and everything, which we find right there in the beginning of verse 17. Paul invited the Jewish community to visit him. A- absolutely. These are basically the, the heads of the synagogue communities of Rome, and we think there were about 90 recognized synagogue communities at this time in Rome, and possibly a number of others making you know, over 130 or something synagogues at this time. And each synagogue would have had uh, three leaders of significance. One would be the magistrate, who was basically the Roman-appointed official for that synagogue community, who would be responsible for uh, making sure every member of that synagogue was following Roman law, and if they violated the law, that they would be punished. And they had the authority to uh, bear the sword, and and I believe that that's the the group that Paul is specifically referring to in Romans chapter 13, and that he had nothing at all in mind about unconditional submission to modern-day civil governments. Uh, That was not in his mind at all, I don't believe, when he wrote the letter to the Romans. And then there would have been the chief leader of the synagogue, and then there, there might have been another one that was uh, the custodian of the Torah scrolls, which, of course, as we've mentioned, had monetary value beyond our imagination in, you know, in present-day dollars. An entire set of scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures, you know, they kept it in a special little ark up in the front of the synagogue and so on. So, these are the t- top two or three officials of each of these 90 synagogues. So it's a, it's a significant number of the Judean community within the city of Rome. And this was his purpose. So it's interesting that uh, this is what is mentioned here. And really, scholars are absolutely baffled why the book of Acts ends this way. It doesn't 
fit into many modern paradigms of what the book of Acts is supposed to be about. Why would Paul fool with these Judean synagogue leaders? So let's see if we can make any sense of this. Now, if we go back to the Roman letter, in Romans 1, verse 11, for instance, Paul writes, and he's writing to the non-Judean Christians in Rome. That's the critical thing to, to get the right context. And these foreigners, or Gentiles, it's, it's horribly translated in uh, many English Bibles, but these uh, non-Judean Christians, they had some issues that Paul's dealing with uh, in, in this letter. He says in 111, I long to see you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you for the establishing of you. And we have seen throughout the book of Acts that the apostles had this ability to impart these um, extraordinary spiritual gifts by the laying on of their hands, as we saw that a group of apostles had to go down from Jerusalem to Samaria after Philip had preached the gospel to them. And that was for this same purpose, to lay their hands on them so that they could get these special temporary gifts, like the ability to translate into languages that they had never studied, the ability to have perfect recall of uh, the Hebrew scriptures and recall of of words of the apostles uh, that had been spoken and so on. And so Paul talks about these gifts in great detail in 1 Corinthians 13, I believe it is. But he really wanted to get to Rome. There were Christians in Rome, but they hadn't been really established like Paul would like. And Ephesians 4 is also a good place to go to see Paul expounding on the temporary nature of these special gifts and their temporary purpose in bringing the early churches to rapid spiritual maturity. That's really the whole topic of Ephesians chapter 4. He had tried to get to Rome, but he'd been hindered over and over. And he still knows that he's going there and that's why he's pleading in the Roman letter for the foreign non-Judean Christians to not give up on the Judeans there who were not accepting Jesus, were not having any interest in learning about him, and so on. Paul makes the point you know, that he needs to get there and, and that the believers need to continue to not offend the Judeans, but to uh, be good members of their synagogue communities so that the non-believers will be prepped when Paul gets there and, and can speak to them. And if we move towards the end of this Roman letter to chapter 15, as he's winding up the letter with these last requests of these believers, he says, Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I might be delivered from those who don't believe in Judea, and that my ministry, which is to Jerusalem, might be acceptable to the saints, that in joy I might come to you through the will of God and may be refreshed with you. So he's requesting that the Christians in Rome pray for him on three specific things. One is that he might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Two, 
that the, the huge offering that he had been collecting amongst all of the non-Judean churches would be received by the Judean churches in and around Jerusalem. This was very important to Paul. And we talked in an earlier session about why this was so important to Paul, because it fulfilled a few Old Testament prophecies about that in the last days of Israel, the wealth of the nations would flow into her. And so Paul is, is bringing the wealth of the nations in to spiritual Zion in fulfillment of these prophecies. And he asked the Christians in Rome to pray that the Judeans would accept it because Paul's great tragedy is that the Judeans would not accept foreigners into God's kingdom as equals. They were willing to accept them in as third-rate servants as long as the Judean men could retain absolute mastery and control of the nation and of the communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Paul came preaching a gospel of total equality of the uncircumcised and the circumcised, and everywhere he went, as we've seen, the Judeans are stirred into a, a jealous rage so violent they act like insane maniacs and go out as mobs into the street and lawlessly try to eliminate Paul and the other believers. We've seen this over and over again. And again, this isn't an accident. This isn't a failure on God's part. This is a, an express fulfillment of the Song of Moses back in Deuteronomy 32, where God has promised that in Israel's last days, they will be provoked to wrath by those who are not a people. And this is Paul's mission, as we've pointed out, to bring in these foreigners who are not the people of God and make them the people of God, and so to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy so that a righteous remnant might be saved out of their number. So, did I get all three of those? Uh, oh, and then the third one is that he might get to Rome. And so, as a modern, uh, recently modern pop song would say, two out of three ain't bad. He got to Rome. The collection for the saints was joyously received in Jerusalem, but he was not completely delivered from unreasonable men in Judea. I mean, he was by the Romans but they almost ripped him limb from limb in the temple courtyard, and so they did cause trouble. So maybe it's two and a half out of three of these uh, requests were granted by God. And God, of course, used the rage of the disbelieving Judeans to bring about his purpose, just as he did with Jesus Christ. He did the same thing with Paul, who is, I remind us all, Paul is not just a human being. He is an apostle, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. As a member of the body of Christ, he is merely continuing in his flesh what Jesus Christ had begun in his flesh. Upon his ascension, his body, his fleshly body ceased to exist, and he now is operating through his spiritual body, and Paul is uh, arguably the most important member of that body 
at this time. I mean, the book of Acts, the entire last 16 chapters out of 28, is dealing with the Apostle Paul. And so he is the, the mouthpiece of Jesus Christ. His feet are the feet of Jesus Christ. His hands are the hands of Jesus Christ, the healing hands of Christ, the teaching word of Christ. And Luke has written the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts intentionally parallel. And, and some of these charts I've seen are just amazing when you see the literary parallels in the life of Christ in Luke to the life of Paul in Acts. So when you, when you read a dispensational commentary about how Paul was confused and didn't understand the real kingdom of God, I mean, I, again, I just cannot buy that uh, at all. This is the inspired apostle of Christ who knew his physical life was forfeit on the road to Damascus, and that's why he could confidently say, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. His physical life only existed to do the bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ from that moment forward. And uh, the idea that he wandered around in a state of confusion, half understanding, making as many mistakes as successes, personally, I can't buy it. Each of you will have to make that decision on your own. But I feel much more confident approaching the Word of God based on the absolute sovereignty of God. And the humanity of the apostles, yes, is still there. They had human failings, but they were not a bunch of bumbling idiots. They were the personal ambassadors of our Lord, as recorded here in these accounts. All right, so he gets to Rome, and we need a little bit of historical background here. Uh, Nero is the emperor. And Paul is to be on trial before Nero. Again, Nero probably not there in person, but it, the court represents Nero, the Supreme Court. Nero, we know the bad. Uh, we know some of the bad, most of us. But he's a fascinating personality. The first five years of his reign as Caesar were phenomenal years for the empire. He was considered a model emperor. His decisions were sound. He lived an exemplary life for the most part compared to most of the Roman elite. And he really had a lot of things on the ball. But the second five years of his reign, everything goes downhill dramatically, and he becomes a almost amoral monster, so evil that it is... Um, challenging to describe the depths of his depravity. But Paul arrives in Rome before that change has really happened. Nero's, uh, I guess, second wife, I, I don't remember the details, but Poppea was her name, and she was a proselyte to Israel and was a member of a synagogue community and followed the law of Moses. He had a celebrity, not a movie star, but the equivalent, the first century equivalent of a movie star, who was one of his best buddies, and his name was Acti, and he was a Judean. And he had another high counselor who was a freedman, and we talked about those way back in Acts chapter 8. Stephen engaged in debate with the synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem, 
and uh, this Friedman was a Judean, and Friedman had uh, extraordinarily high status in Roman society. So much of Nero's inner circle about the time Paul gets to Rome are Judean. But apparently a few months after Acts 28, a group travels from Jerusalem to Rome that included a number of representatives of the high priest, so mostly a Sadducean group. And it may have been the high priest himself. We don't know for sure. But these were some of the highest-ranking members of the Sanhedrin Council in Jerusalem. And at least a number of them were direct representatives of the high priest, and it's possible the high priest went himself. And they went and they got an audience with Nero because of these uh, Judeans in his inner circle. And, of course, they wanted the government of Rome to turn and begin crushing the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. But significantly, that occurs some months after the account in Acts 28, around the year uh, 63 or early in 64. Later in the year 64 occurs the burning of Rome, and uh, Nero in all likelihood wanted to burn out a whole quarter of the city because he had a complete architectural model of a new Rome that he wanted to build. And so he blamed the Christians for this fire that he likely had part in setting or at least in not getting put out. And so he was able to accomplish at least a couple of his goals all there in one fell swoop. But those events will occur a little bit after the book of Acts ends. And scholars, again, are very confused as to why the book of Acts ends like it does without mentioning Nero at all, but instead focusing on Paul getting this face-to-face audience with the Judean community of Rome. Let's skip ahead here and read verses 28 and 29, Acts 28. Now you must realize that this salvation of God has been transmitted to the Gentiles. Who will heed it? For two full years Paul stayed on in his rented lodgings, welcoming all who came to him. Do you have a a verse in between those two, perhaps? Verse 29. It says a summary at verse 30, so I don't know what I should have been reading because that's what it has here. Okay. Well, maybe you said it and I just missed it here. After Paul says that the salvation of God is gone to the nations, when he had said these words, the Judeans departed and had great, discussion amongst themselves. And the yeah, NIV, no, I'm sorry, the NIV does what with that? Does not have verse 29. Huh, okay. Well, the King James has it, the literal translation and Young's literal translation all have it here. So, What's the verse? Uh, Do you have it? Yeah, verse 29. And he, having said these things, the Judeans went away, having much dispute amongst themselves. So this is how the book of Acts ends, and we'll, we'll have a little bit more to say about uh, Acts 28. But again, the book of Acts is focused on Paul from since chapter 13, and we see throughout his travels, he's 
persecuted by the Judeans in Lystra and Derby. He's uh, stoned almost to death. He's left for dead but doesn't die. He's in uh, prison in Philippi. He's beaten severely. He's run out of Thessalonica by the Judeans. He leaves Athens without any success. He finally spends about a year and a half in Corinth in Acts 18, and then the Judean mob uh, breaks out, and he has to leave quickly. He makes a quick trip to Jerusalem and then comes back up to Ephesus after going through uh, eastern Turkey. And then after being in Ephesus for three and a half years, then again the there's the silversmiths and then the Judeans who start to riot there. He In Acts 20, he tells the elders of Ephesus that he was about to go up to Jerusalem, and he says, the Holy Spirit has shown me that I'm going to be imprisoned, and I'm going to suffer for my faith, as if he hadn't suffered already. <laughs> and now, since he goes into the temple, the Judeans from Asia near Ephesus are the ones that start the riot there that nearly uh, rip him apart. And he goes through all these trials, and then he gets to Rome, and he's supposed to be on trial before Nero, but we get a little bit of snippets of some of this from Second Timothy, that letter, and that may be his second appearance before Nero when he is convicted and beheaded. But in Acts, it doesn't end with any of that detail at all. The culmination of all of these preliminary trials is not his final trial in Rome, but rather his meeting with the leaders of the Judean synagogue. Has Luke come off his track? Did he totally foul up the end of his narrative here? Why does he abandon this lofty finale to have this anticlimax of Paul meeting with the Judean leaders of Rome? And hopefully some of you who've been listening, you know, already know the answer to this. Paul is not really concerned what is going to happen during his formal court appearance. I mean, he's already been acquitted, uh, well, really, in front of the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees acquitted him, if you recall. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa basically all admitted that he was innocent. And so Paul is not really concerned. God used this trial and the Roman escort to get Paul in front of the Judean leaders of Rome. And this was far more important in God's purpose than was Paul's appearance before Nero. And we've tried to, to demonstrate that. Paul viewed the gospel as the complete and absolute fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel from the land promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that our Zionist friends love so much, all the way up through the end of Malachi, all the promises of deliverance and judgment, all the promises of land, of a new temple, of resurrection from the dead, Ezekiel 37, Paul viewed his mission as really capping off the final fulfillment of all of those promises summed up as eternal life joined to Christ 
in his eternal kingdom as a bride is joined to her husband, or as living stones in an eternal, perfect, spiritual temple in which all men and all women are equal and have an equal place at the table of God in the eternal gospel feast described by the prophet Isaiah. And so, you see, it makes so much more sense that way with how the book of Acts ends with Paul getting to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the leaders of the synagogues in Rome. As Paul had already described in his Roman letter, the gospel goes to the Judean first and then to the nations. And so, as Paul delivered the gospel to the nations, he went into the synagogue communities, presented it to the Judeans sitting in the front seats, and invariably the foreigners who had to sit in the far back, probably behind a screen, responded almost unanimously to the message, whereas only a remnant out of the men of Israel in each synagogue would respond positively. And so this is the theme, I believe, of the entire book of Acts, and this is the theme in Acts 28, and Luke doesn't conclude in a literary mess. He concludes with the exact emphasis that God, our eternal Father, intended for him to have, that those promises were all made to Israel and through Israel, and Israel had to have the first right of refusal uh, on the gospel. The gospel had to go to them first, as long as they existed as a nation, and then to the foreigners, and the foreigners were being used to provoke the remnant, the last remnant in Israel, to repentance and conversion before their nation was completely and utterly uh, broken and destroyed and scattered in the wars 67 through 70 A.D. Anybody want to throw something in here? Are you going to read the last verse of the book of Acts? Yeah, go ahead and read 30 and 31, please. For two full years, Paul stayed on in his rented lodgings, welcoming all who came to him with full assurance and without any hindrance whatever. He preached the reign of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Great, thank you. Again, the gospel to Paul and the kingdom were interchangeable concepts because the kingdom of God is the body of Christ and the body of Christ are those saved by the gospel. The salvation of the gospel is not just because God felt like doing something nice for the human race, but it was to fulfill his eternal purpose to create the perfect helpmeet for his son and the perfect dwelling place for himself on earth. And this is how Revelation ends. The last two chapters of the book of Revelation describe the complete and perfect fulfillment of those two purposes of God which existed before the foundations of the earth in Genesis chapter 1. And so Paul is proclaiming these not as some distant thing that might happen in 3,000 years, but he's preaching it as absolute accomplished fact and with great power here. But this message first went 
to the Judeans, and then it is going out to anyone, anywhere, of any nation, of any background, you know, that wants to hear it. And now this doesn't mean we're through it, because I've skipped over, you know, part of this. And if we don't finish this tonight, we will uh, hopefully wrap it up next time before we do a summation of the book of Acts uh, from 1 through 28. Hey, I have a couple of questions for Mark before we let him go here. You brought up something that I hadn't thought about before, is the Judean influence on Nero. Could you uh, talk about that a little bit more and, and where you came up with that? Well, it's pretty much an indisputed historical fact. I've never seen anything in print that questions this at all. His wife was a proselyte and followed the law of Moses, not just a God-fearer, but someone that actually followed the diet and everything. And so the idea in the book of Revelation about the harlot bride riding on the beast is what took place in Rome in the year 64 when Nero agreed to wed the power of the Roman Empire to the corrupt Judean leadership in Jerusalem who have been the nemesis of Paul and the gospel throughout the book of Acts. But yet Luke has made it incredibly clear from the beginning of Acts all the way to the very end that the Roman government has never hindered the gospel at all, all of these years. It's been the pagans sometimes. It's been, though, the Judeans everywhere all the time. Those are the forces that have hindered the gospel. And so the Roman government has been an aid to Paul. His rights as a Roman citizen have enabled him to get out of some tight spots and to boldly preach the gospel in many places. And that's why, again, it's very consistent that Luke makes this point. The last words that Paul preached in Rome with all confidence, no one hindering him. Okay? As long as the Roman government was free of Judean influence, it was a help and aid to the gospel. But what Nero does in 64 is he grants this request to turn the full might and power of Rome over to accomplish these Judean wishes of stamping out these heretic followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So what is the actual death warrant on Paul? Is there any extant information where that came from and, and why? Well, nothing that I've seen that's definitive, but many scholars believe that Paul is easily acquitted shortly after the book of Acts concludes. The case might have just been dismissed summarily because there's really no evidence, there's no standing in a Roman court for violations of the law of Moses. And so Paul's dismissed, and many scholars believe that he went on to Spain as he had wanted to do after he got to Rome, and that he preached in Spain, and that would have brought him through part of France if he traveled overland and so on, but that only had a few more months of freedom because Nero gets tuned in to the Judean wish to crush these people, and Paul at some point is brought to his attention again, and Paul is, is um, a warrant is put out, and he's arrested, and he's brought back to Rome, literally in chains this time, and is thrown in a dungeon, and that's where he writes his second letter to Timothy, 
that's the context of that letter. And just sometime after that letter, as a Roman citizen, he is granted the privilege of death by beheading by a sword, as opposed to hanging or crucifixion reserved for non-citizens and slaves. And so most scholars believe that he, shortly after writing that, we don't know if it's weeks or months or even years, but he's taken out and beheaded as part of Nero's uh, conversion, so to speak, of using the power of Rome to destroy the followers of Christ. Mm. Great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.